Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. We are in week three of this series called Lost and Found. I told you when I started, I really feel like there's like a 12-week series that I'm trying to somehow compress into three. And I get to the end today and I'm kind of, it was kind of freaking out this week going, oh man, I need to talk about election and predestination and how uh, the, the relationship between faith and repentance and regeneration and end time stuff and how justification, glorification, sanctification all fits together and how you can't separate them all. And I can sort of have all this stuff I wanted to say and I'm not going to get to all that. I'm just going to tell you, um, we're going to have to cover that another time. But I think we're going to focus on some important stuff today. Week one, we talked about what it means that we are lost. And we talked about the problem of our sin, the problem of, of eventual judgment, and how that sets us up for an awful lot of trouble and an awful lot of heartache. But week two, we talked about what does it mean, not just that we are lost, but that we are found. What does it mean that we, are, that we can be saved by grace through faith, that Jesus comes and regenerates us by his spirit. He justifies us and declares us righteous so that there's now no condemnation for anyone who's in Christ Jesus. But he doesn't just leave us there. He also begins through his spirit, the sanctifying work of freeing us from the power of sin so that we can become more like him. And eventually tells us that we will be glorified, that we'll be freed from the very presence of sin to live with him forever. That's the aspect we're going to talk about today. So we talked about lost, found, Today we're going to talk about what does it mean that we're heaven bound, that glorification part, that part where sin is no more, but God reigns freely forever. What does it look like for us to live in that place when we are home at last? It's interesting, Jesus in John 14 talked about heaven and he was about to leave earth and, and actually he was about to go to the cross and then eventually die. And so he's trying to prepare his disciples, his followers, his guys forward that eventual end and kind of where he was headed. And in doing so, he knew that that they were beginning to freak out because they knew that this was the king that was supposed to come and reign. And they didn't quite understand exactly why it was he had to go become a suffering servant and die. And so they were beginning to panic. And Jesus had this to say in John 14, he says, look, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. It gives us this image of heaven as a home. It's a warm, comforting image, isn't it? The idea that there's a, a home for us. There's, it's not just God's gonna put us up in a hotel somewhere, but he says, in my father's house, you as his adopted children will come and live within the home of heaven. And so there's a place for us to go. Now, the, the key thing about that place of heaven, you may say, well, where is this place? It's actually what the disciples go, well, how do we know our way there? And Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm life. No one comes to the Father except for, through me. He said, I'm the one. So where is heaven? It's wherever Jesus is, wherever God the Father is and wherever Jesus went to go prepare a place for us. It's the presence of God that makes it heaven itself. But beyond that, what do, we, what do you really know about heaven? Have you ever really studied the Bible? Have you really, ever really dug in? And just said, man, what is everything going to be like in that forever place, in that time when I get there? I find that there's a lot of misconceptions about heaven. Uh, This idea pops up oftentimes in movies. 
this some kind of a paradise or heaven. It pops up in songs. Uh, we, we sing these uh, kind of songs. And, 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 you know, if you take some of them literally, you think that a 15-year-old boy seeing a 15-year-old girl, it creates heaven on earth immediately. And that's really what, it, what heaven is. And I just tell you, it's, it's bigger than that. Like that's, that may be cool, but it's not really enough to sustain us for all time. But what is heaven? We, uh, we see popular books about heaven that uh, maybe someone uh, has a near-death experience and they have a, an image of, or, or some kind of experience or vision of what heaven might be. And, uh, you know, they, they see all these things, and they come back and tell us all about it. And, and, and they, they write a bestseller because that's what you should do uh, if you get to kind of have a vision of heaven. We see comic strips and they have these little quips about the afterlife and what it ought to be. Uh, one of my favorites is the far side. And if you know anything about the far side, there's this constant little thing of jokes about heaven and jokes about hell. And so we get all these ideas that come through, but oftentimes I, I think they fall short of what the Bible teaches about heaven. In fact, even, even our praise and worship songs, even our hymns, oftentimes I think fall short of what heaven really is and the fullness of it. In fact, think about this one, uh, one of those famous ones. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Um, let's be honest, is that, does, that, does that do it for you? Like you get to sing every day for 10,000 years. Now, dude, like I love, I love you. I, I love our times of worship. I love when we get to come in here and we do get to sing and if something good about reminding ourselves of the presence of the Lord. But I'll just be honest, if I did that every day for 10,000 years, there's part of me that goes, man, I don't know. Is that really paradise? Is that really all that it's going to be? And what I want to tell you is it's not. Uh, to be honest, it's much better than that. But here's what I, I realize is I think Satan wants to deceive us about what the ultimate joys of heaven really are. Satan doesn't want us to fix our hopes on something that's genuinely great because he might distract us and convince us that down here is the only really good stuff. That here and now is the stuff that we have to hold on to. And he doesn't want us to associate real deep joy with heaven. He'd rather us think it's kind of boring. So he'd rather us think that you're kind of a fat little baby with a harp, you know, playing along. You know, that's not a pretty picture, by the way. Uh, but he'd rather you think that it's some kind of just disembodied ghost-like experience in some ethereal other world where we just kind of float around for all of eternity. But it's not that. In fact, the Bible says that our citizenship is, is in heaven. Uh, and so we're merely sojourners in this world. Now, part of what that means is that like your ultimate, your ultimate home address right now is in heaven. It's not on Smiling Hills Lane or Ridgecrest Drive or Yucca Boulevard, but your ultimate address is in, is in heaven. That's your home. That's the place that you're going to. And it's in, the hell, it's in the house that Jesus is building and preparing for us. But Satan wants to detract from all that Jesus has done. And by detracting from that, he can minimize the victory that we have in Christ and all the goodness that, we, that awaits us. And if he can do that, then he'll dull our desire for heaven so that we don't think about it at all. He'll also dull, our, if he convinces us that it's not that exciting a place to go, he'll also convince us it's not that exciting of a place for us to invite our friends to and keep us from sharing the gospel with others so that they might want to go with us as well. And uh, several months ago, I began thinking and just praying about kind of where we are as a church, where we are as a society, what I'm seeing and what I'm sensing, and not just in my life, but in the lives of those around me and 
And can I just tell you, one of the things I, I just was convicted about is, and I think we need a greater hunger for heaven. I think we need a greater, to, greater to, uh, to more fully understand the call of heaven, to desire it, and to, we need, which means we need to preach about it more. We need to talk about it more. Um, and so this is one of those things that I think, just as I think about um, just where we are, a constant news cycle, the constant social media stream, the constant, constant outrage culture, uh, the constant binge watching and filling every minute with some immediate little joy uh, of trying to get you through the day, our, our busyness with school and work and our lives that keep us so full that we rarely stop and think about something beyond our task list of the day. And I just think we need to somehow reorient our lives and, and order it to eternity and live with the end in mind, knowing that if there's something out there that's even greater, that's where our hopes ought to be. That's where our eventual eyes ought to be, somehow beyond the, beyond the horizon to something even greater that awaits us down the road. It's interesting, even some philosophers and thinkers I've been reading are, are saying that it's almost impossible for this generation to, to look beyond the immediate that they're so fixated on the immediate meeting of their needs and their desires that it's almost impossible for them to imagine a deferred gratitude that's waiting for them out there somewhere. What that means is we're going to need God to do something supernatural in us today for us to begin to see something that's bigger than the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, but to see the ultimate thing. We're going to need God to give us a hunger and a desire for the new heaven and new earth a hunger and a desire to be with the Lord, a hunger and a desire to see all things made new and experiencing life in all of its glorified goodness. So friends, would you, would you lean in here with me for just a little while? Would you just kind of sit up and, and lean in and just ask the Lord to stir your hunger and your desire and your thirst for eternity and what that would look like today? So when we talk about heaven, and we're talking about life after death. And as one guy put it, life after life as we know it. Uh, because for us, when we die, we don't really die. We just move on. We believe that, uh, that all human beings are eternal. That our souls don't just, uh, don't just dissolve, but that we live eternally. And so because of that, we, we need to talk about death and what happens after, after death. And we're uncomfortable talking about death. When, uh, whenever someone is visiting in the hospital and you know that they're terminal, you know, if there's an end, we tend to say things like this. Uh, or when someone dies, we tend to say, he's in a better place now, or I'm glad their suffering's over, or uh, heaven needed another angel. Or, uh, or maybe we say something like, God, God needed them more than we did. And mostly we just say whatever comes to mind to try to get us out of the tension of that moment, right? And so we just grab some saying we've heard and we spit it out, hoping that it, maybe it'll bring some comfort, but at least it gives us something to try to move on to the next conversation. Now, I think it, it, the, these conversations tend to minimize the pain of, of death and the pain of suffering, but they also minimize the joy of the victory that we have in Christ and the eternity of the resurrection and the glory of the resurrection. So friends, I think sometimes our insecurities and our uncertainties about the way things unfold give, a, give us pause to know how to even interact with these things. But here's what I want to encourage you with. The Bible actually gives us truth to stand on. We have truth we can depend on in the face of death and truth we can actually offer to others in comfort whenever they need it and whenever we're in those moments. Death is a fact of life, right? I mean, what, 
what would you say is the mortality rate on earth currently? Pretty sure it hovers right around 100%, right? I mean, you can laugh. I mean, we're, we are talking about death, but you can laugh at that. Like, it, there's no one that seems to skip around this thing. It tends to stay pretty, pretty constant in our world. In fact, uh, it's a hard thing that uh, Randy Alcorn, and I'm gonna leave on, lean on some of his work. He wrote a really good book called Heaven. If you wanna lean in more than that, that might be a, a resource you'd wanna go to, but I'm gonna lean on some of his stuff here today. Uh, but he said on earth, three people die every second. That's 180 per minute, 11,000 every hour, 250,000 people every day that pass away. Now I'm not good at math, but that seems like a lot. And it seems like hard truth for us to realize. But the Bible is very clear about death. In Genesis 2, it says, God himself says that if we, if, we, uh, if we eat of the forbidden tree, if we disobey him, he says, you will surely die. First John 1 John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then Romans 6.23 says, the wages or payment of sin is death. So if we've sinned, we're going to eventually die. That, that's an ultimate reality the scriptures uh, tell us about. Here's what we know. Sin, suffering, death, they're always evil. Death is never meant to be looked at as something good. Death is a result of sin in the world. Death is always an enemy. It's always an enemy. In fact, it's the last enemy to be destroyed. In 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus gives us victory over death, but Jesus died so that death might be no more. So death is always an enemy. And Today, we're gonna to talk about what happens after we die so that we're better prepared for that encounter. Hebrews 9.27 says it's destined for all men to die once and after that, the judgment. So there's a death that happens and after death, all people are gonna be judged. In fact, there's two different judgments. We're not gonna break all that down today. We're just gonna talk about kind of the big picture and really focus on what it is that, uh, that, that's at stake in our eternal state and, and really where we're, where we're headed. And so when you think about this death, it says it's destined all men to die and after that to face judgment. Immediately upon our death, uh, the scriptures teach that all people are separated into two groups. One who's heaven bound and one who's hell bound. And those two are set in, in that place. And if the Bible, if what the Bible says is true about that and those numbers are accurate, that means 250,000 people per day have their eternal destinies set for all time. Well, that's, that's a weighty thing for us. And the Bible teaches that people will be divided based on their relationship to God. Our Heavenly Father has made known His goodness in all kinds of ways, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. And, and He's made the offer of reconciliation available to all of us in Christ. The question is, have we received it or not? Have we received the good news of His reconciliation and submitted ourselves to it by faith? Or have we rejected it and walked away and continued to ignore him? John 3.36 says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So even now, based on where you are with Jesus, it determines which direction you go. And Jesus himself was very clear about that. Acts 17 also says, God has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Jesus will come back and he will judge and he will separate things for all time. Now, that brings us to a question. What, what do we do with hell? And I, I'm not gonna spend as much time here today as I, as I would really like, but I wanna touch on a couple things because I think it's important related to how we understand heaven. As you think about hell, um, Jesus actually taught about hell more than anyone else in all the scriptures. 
And what we have to understand about hell is that God is, uh, God is a God of love, but God is also a God of justice. And he has to maintain righteousness in the world. And in fact, what we see in the scriptures is that God's enforcement of justice is actually God's, enfor- or, or God's enforcement of goodness in heaven. In order, for, uh, in order for heaven to be a reality, hell has to be a necessity. God has to do something with evil in the world in order to create a world without evil. And so he's obligated to eradicate evil. Let me ask you this question. How can God establish a world without sin, without pain, with people who refuse him and refuse to follow his ways? For those who have rejected his rule, for those who have rejected his lordship, for those who have rejected him and ignored him as God, and they they say, no, I wanna go about things my own way. How is it that God's gonna bring about a righteous world and a righteous kingdom when there's constant rebellion against the king? See, in order for heaven to become a reality, hell has to be a necessity. God has to do something with evil in our world. And in our own experience, and do you sometimes feel the futility of our justice? Just the, the way in which our world works. Think about, think about wars and the warring of nations. And you may have a nation that rises up and they conquer another nation. You have another nation that refutes that. And they may rule for a couple hundred years, for a couple centuries, but then another one's gonna come and take over that. And there's this constant kind of one-upping of one another. There's this constant battle of, uh, of things that happen, but the cycle never seems to make things truly better. And so what we settle for in our world is, how do we just try to keep it from getting out of control? How do we just try? It's kind of like parenting in some ways. Like, how do we just keep it from completely losing control in the world and just try to keep things sort of under, under wraps? But we really can't bring about final justice, final goodness, final freedom because we're finite beings and we can't do it. And so you see verses like 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 to 9 says, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. They will, they will be separated away from the presence of the Lord. See, if, if heaven is to be in the presence of the Lord, hell is to be isolated from the, the active, caring, life-giving presence of the Lord. And so there's a separation that takes place there. But it's not as though God is violating them by sending them there. It's not as though he's taking those who fell a little short and saying, ah, oh, you just didn't do well enough. He's actually taking those who've rebelled against him and saying, I guess I'll let you have what you want. As one guy said that all of eternity breaks down to us either saying to God, thy will be done, or God returning to us and saying, no, thy will be done. I'll let you have as you want. C.S. Lewis actually said, hell is the greatest monument to human freedom there is. That God actually gives them over to their own desires of trying to live life apart from him. Friends, this is hard news. And it's interesting, when the angels, when the angels rebelled against the Lord, it was instant judgment. They were separated forever into those who had fallen away, who were destined for God's wrath, and those who remained true to the Lord. But there's no possibility of redemption, of reconciliation for them. But when humanity, when we sinned and when we rebelled against God, God sent his only son so that we who were created in his image might, through the substitute of another man's death in our place, be restored to right relationship with him, reconciled to him, and live forever with him. 
God left heaven open to us if we would merely heed his call to be reconciled to him. And he invited us to him. It's interesting, the scriptures, the way they talk about this, Ezekiel 18 says, God, God is speaking, he says, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that they should turn from his way and live. So I don't, I don't delight in the death of the wicked. He's, there's a call for them to turn. And 2 Peter 3.9 says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I mean, God, God, can't, God can't give up his just character. He has to enforce justice, but he's slow and he waits and he's longing and he's calling and he's giving us every opportunity to repent and to believe so that we can be with him forever. He desires that none should perish, First Timothy says, and so that all would come to the knowledge of the truth. See, there's only one way of salvation, but God desires you to know that one way. And so he continues to wait. Friends, if you've not placed your faith in Jesus and trusted your life to him, can I just tell you, don't wait. Don't wait. If you've got friends who don't know Jesus and you want them to know him and to live forever, don't wait to tell them. Jesus said uh, he will come like a thief in the night, unexpected. And we are to be ready and we're to be waiting and watching and ready for his appearance. Let's not fall asleep. Let's be those who are waiting, those who are alert, and those who long for him. Now, if you're in Christ, what awaits you is something entirely different. Y'all ready to get to heaven? Talk about some of that. Let's look at what awaits us. 1 Corinthians 15, 55, 57, say this. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death has no victory over us. Death is an enemy, but it's an enemy God has conquered through Jesus. And so when we're in the face of death, we can say, death, where's your sting? His sting is through sin, but there's no victory in it. That ultimately Jesus has redeemed us so that we have victory through Christ and death has no power to hold us down. Our victory was won through Jesus and his substitutionary atonement on the cross. His death for us applied to us his righteousness and took away from us our sin so that we could be fully reconciled and restored to God and we can, be, we can know that we will live with him forever. The Bible teaches that he came to earth the first time to, as a sacrificial lamb to give up his life for us, but he's gonna to come to earth again as a reigning king in order to, to deliver us from the very presence of sin. So let's talk about what happens when Christians die. You've breathed your last. Where do you go from then? First, 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says, yes, we are of good courage for we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. See, the first thing that happens when you breathe your last is that your body stays there and your spirit goes immediately into the presence of the Lord, goes up to be with Jesus. And for Christians to die is to be away from the body, but it says to be at home with the Lord in that place that Jesus has gone ahead of us to prepare that we would go. Now we say up there because the, the, it's the language that the Bible uses. The Bible just talks about heaven being up there, meaning it's not somehow here in this world and in this realm and kind of where we are, but that it's somewhere, somewhere else. And ultimately though, where heaven is, is wherever Jesus is. That that's the place that, uh, that, that we, know we, can, uh, we know that we are headed. 
And so when people die, what happens is your body is left behind, but your spirit immediately goes to that place where Jesus is. Theologians call this the intermediate state, uh, which is kind of a weird thing to think about. Um, it's, it's not really very comforting if you're at a funeral and you're like, oh, they're in the intermediate state. Uh, it's not really one of those things that's very helpful, but here's why it's important. You need to understand that your, your body, your spirit leaves your body and goes to be there and it's awaiting the day when you're going to be reunited with your body. So human beings are, we're, we're body and spirit. We're material and immaterial and those two things are wed together. And so right now, as you live and breathe and sit in this room, you've got flesh and a body and this material part of who you are. And you've also got the spirit part of who you are, this immaterial part of who you are, and they're joined together as one. What happens at death is those two things are separated so that your body is left here and your spirit goes to be with the Lord. And it's an intermediate state because that's not the final end. It's awaiting the day when Jesus is going to bring a new body, a glorified body, a resurrected body, an imperishable body, and he's going to give that to you and your spirit is going to be reunited to it. And so that's the ultimate end that you're looking for. Now, there's some debate, like, what does this state mean? Like, what does it mean for you and me to be a spirit without a body? This kind of disembodied spirit thing is kind of strange because scriptures talk about it and it seems as though there's kind of this consciousness and this aliveness and this interaction of what's happening, this enjoyment of being in the presence of the Lord. I mean, how is it far better to be with the Lord as a spirit apart from your body than it is to be here? Well, somehow that must be true. So we don't know if there's in some kind of like a temporary state of body in which your body's there or just some way in which your spirit is somehow cognizant of what's going on and able to interact. We don't really know, but here's what we do realize, that that's not how you're gonna spend all of eternity. The present place we call heaven is not the, the eternal heaven that we will enjoy. Christ will return. He'll bring his people back to earth. And man, there's lots of different kind of ways of working that out in terms of understanding the end times and understanding the exact nature of those events. What all Christians agree upon is there will become a time when, when Christ physically returns to earth and he reigns as King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and all things are righted in this world. And so looking forward to that day is, is really what stirs our heart. And so the heaven that we know right now is not... It is where God is and we're with him, but it's important to know that it won't be the same way forever. But the, there will be a season in which you'll be living with him as a spirit without the body that you currently have. So that's, that's part of what we need to know. But I think it's also important for us to know that we will not live in this kind of eternal disembodied state. Like you don't, you don't become an angel when you die. You don't sprout wings when you die. You don't, you don't become fat little baby you know, that looks like a little cherub. You don't, uh, you know, a little precious moments doll. You don't become one of those. Uh, you, don't, you don't become kind of ghosts and, and you, don't, you don't just kind of float around in this kind of ethereal happiness of kind of devoid of all things physical forever. But ultimately, the promise of scripture is resurrection. At death, we go to heaven to be with the Lord, but eventually there is a resurrection that will come our way. And that's the ultimate climax for our existence. In fact, Paul says, it's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if the dead are not raised, then our, our faith is futile and we're, most pity to be, uh, we're, we're to be most pitied among all men. Man, if, if, we've, if we've given our lives to this hope of an eternal future that's made in joy, but there is no resurrection, then Paul says, man, it, you might as well just go 
throw away all your Christian faith and you might as well just go run after the world. But there is something that's better. And so we've got a hope of something better in the future. So what is that? That resurrection means that the spirit that's with him must one day be reunited to a new body, a glorified body, a body that's gonna last forever. Now this has all kinds of questions for us, doesn't it? Uh, My daughter Kate was asking me, uh, actually just this week, uh, she said, when Jesus comes back, is he gonna come back like a baby and have to grow up again? Or does he come back kind of as he was when he died? And she was asking that. And I was like, that's a really good question. In fact, I'm actually talking about that this Sunday. But it does raise lots of questions. Um, my, my wife's grandfather actually burned to death in a house fire. And I remember being at the funeral and one of the, the, the great grandkids asked me and she said, I don't understand where he is right now if his body burned up. And that was a very real question. If he didn't have a body, then where is he? And I began to explain, well, his spirit is with the Lord right now. And one day God's going to give him a new body that's whole and good and right. Another friend of mine was, uh, had cancer and had to get quartered from his collarbone down to really his nipple, everything over here, this whole arm was gone. And uh, we used to talk about, he's like, man, where do you think my other arm is going to come from? You know, like when God gives me a new body, is it like, is he going to come back armless? No, he's going to come back with a new body. Everything gets made new. It's one of those things that we, that we wrestle with. And some things we don't fully understand. I remember one of, one of my friends, Steve, is a guy with Down syndrome. And his dad was one of my mentors, mentors and was actually one of my professors. And I remember just talking with Steve. And I love Steve. Steve's one of my favorite people on the planet. And I remember just asking him, I was like, I was like Bob, is Steve going to come back with Downs or not? And he's like, man, I don't know. He's like, I cannot imagine Steve being more joyful than he is right now, ever. He's like, so I can't imagine him being any different. But all we know is that that everything's gonna be made right. And that whatever those body things that we have that are broken are gonna be restored and made new. And it's gonna be better than it was. And so um, this is what we see is that, this is what we have to look forward to is that Christ is coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to bring a, bring a resurrection. Do you know what? Jesus is like, like a good leader. Jesus isn't asking us to do something he wouldn't do. He went first. Jesus himself died. Jesus himself was resurrected. Think about Jesus when he, when, when he was resurrected. He appeared and said for about 40 days, he wandered around with his disciples. And what kind of things did they do whenever he was wandering around with them? And they talked, they could touch him. They, they laughed together. Um, he sat down, on, he sat down on, the, on the shore with Peter and he killed some fish and he chopped up and, and baked a little meal for, for Peter and they had a little breakfast together. And they, they shared that meal as he talked with him. And Jesus was very much real. He had flesh and bone. He was, he, he was, he was glorified in a resurrected body. But it's important for us to understand that. Jesus didn't come back with like a hologram image. Like it wasn't like the holograms we do. We are like, man, that artist, that musician was so amazing. Let's create a hologram, hologram so we can experience their joy of their presence forever. It, it's not like that. Jesus was fully resurrected and he walked amongst us. He didn't lip sync. He wasn't fake eating. Like when he was sitting there with Peter sharing a meal, he wasn't like, oh, you know, I'm just gonna pretend like I'm eating. He consumed food because he had a real body. It just was a resurrected body. So when we die, our, our bodies are like a, like a discarded coat that we set aside because we're putting on a new one. But it's important for you to know, you're not, you don't just go to a spirit world, you're gonna physically live. So you tracking with the, pro, the progress here? 
when we die, our spirits go to heaven. Jesus comes back. We're going to have resurrected bodies. We're going to be reunited to uh, bodies. And so we'll be able to live as we do. And that's the, the, the pinnacle of the climax we're looking for is Jesus' return to make all those things happen. In fact, his return is mentioned 318 times in the New Testament. Uh, Philippians 3 says this, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. See, Christ is gonna come back. Our home is wherever Jesus is. Our home's in heaven. And we're waiting for Jesus to come and give us, take our lowly bodies. Any of you feel the pain of your lowly body? Any of you feel the arthritis of your lowly body? Any of you feel the sagging of your lonely body? Any of you feel the surgeries that you've had in the past that tell you your lowly body is broken? We await the day when we will have a glorious body like his and his power is what's enable it. Friends, one day we're gonna have a redeemed people on a redeemed earth with redeemed culture where all things have been, have been made new so we can live forever on earth. So the present heaven is temporary, but Jesus is gonna relocate back to earth and bring heaven with him, his presence, and make things different. First, Second Peter 3, 13 says, according to, the promise, according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So we're waiting for the promise that he made to come to fruition because that day we'll, have, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be made new. We'll have glorified bodies and things will be different. Randy Alcorn talked about this. He says, uh, this is one of the reasons why we don't need a bucket list. You know what uh, the idea of a bucket list is? You know that, that whole concept? That we've got a list of some things that we really wanna do, either really fun things or really m- uh, meaningful things that we wanna accomplish in the few days we have before we live. And because if we don't get them in, we just know our time ran out. And so there's kind of like the, the hourglass is sipping and the sand's dripping through. And you know you have a certain amount of time, so you better run and kind of grab all you can in the little bit of time that you have. And part of what the implication of that is, is that you don't live forever. So, man, if you want to go climb a mountain in the Andes, you better, get, you better buy your ticket now. You want to learn to surf? You want to jump out of a perfectly good airplane like an idiot? Uh, like now's your time to go do that. Uh, if you want to visit Italy, you better get there before it sinks. You you better figure out how to go do all the things you want to do in life. But what if your death isn't the end of your life on earth? I mean, what if if you actually have eternity to enjoy all the goodness of life on earth? What if if you're you're not going to just run out of days in which to enjoy the, the, the beautiful and indestructible world that God's going to create here? And what if you get to do it in a body that's always whole and always healthy? That's the future of heaven. That's what we have to look forward to. Part of what that means is that you may need a bigger bucket list. Friends, we will will eat more joyously in the new earth than ever before. Our bodies and our spirits will be more in sync in, in the new earth than ever before. Our friendships will be more satisfying in the new earth than ever before. Our work will be more fruitful and rewarding in the new earth than ever before. Our rest will be more restorative in the new earth than ever before. Our marriages and family relationships will be more life-giving in the new earth than ever before. You have so much to look forward to. And and so often we minimize what's out there and we get fixated on what's right here, which is why I think Romans 8 says this, for I consider that the sufferings of the present time 
are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Any of you know some sufferings in the present time? Any of you know the hurts of today? He says, he's not trying to minimize our sufferings at all. He's saying they're real. They're, they're heavy. The weight bears down upon us. The sufferings of the present time are real. And yet they're not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us. All creation waits for the revealing of what we shall one day be. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. See, all creation, when we fell, when we sinned, all creation was impacted and affected by it. And so it says, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Do you see the picture that he's given you there? He said, all the hurt, all the stuff, all the struggle, all the pain that makes you groan about the way this life works is really, it's like childbirth pains to produce something new. And the thing that we are waiting for is that our bodies would be resurrected. And that we would know what it's like to live with him forever as we're revealed to be the sons of God who are made to be like him. That's good news. It means all the abuses, all the struggles, all the shattered dreams, all the lost hopes, all the, <clears throat> all the failures that we had will be gone and all creation will be restored and renewed. That's good news. Heaven's not God snatching people out of earth and letting them float for all eternity. It's God restoring things to the way it's supposed to be. I love the phrase, he says, that creation itself will be set free from the bondage of corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's where we're headed. Friends, the gospel is not mainly that you have a few warm, fuzzy moments with Jesus personally here on earth. Like you can do that with a kitten. The gospel is Jesus coming back to rule and to reign in a world that's been fully restored that you walk in all the glory of his goodness and everything you're intended to enjoy. It means when Christ comes back to reign over, over the, the world as king, there will be cities, there'll be people, there'll be nations, there'll be races, there'll be all things. And yet we'll be united under his rule and his reign and under his goodness. And he's redeeming a people of all tribes and, tribes and all tongues. And, and what it means is there'll be a place where there's no wars, no orphans, no poverty, no racism, no bullies, no pimps, no thieves, no murder, no greed, no hate, no sin, no sorrow, no tears, no death. That's the world he's coming back to bring. And that's the world we need to be hungry for. First John 3 says, Beloved, we're God's children now. And what we, have, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we, will, uh, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. We're gonna be like Jesus. That means that we'll be like him in holiness. We'll be like him in knowledge. Not that we'll be omnipotent, but our knowledge will all be truth. We'll be like him in love. But it's fascinating. It's not just that I will be like him or that you will be like him. It says, we will all be like him. Can you imagine a world where everyone is like him? Where collectively, all beings, all races, all tribes, all tongues live and look like Jesus? 
we'll always be finite, but we'll become healed by him and we'll become more like him. Now, it's interesting in the Bible that Jesus is at the center of all of this. And so when you think about this, when he came to earth the first time, John 12 says he, he came as a humble king riding on a donkey. And so there's this humility that, that's there and there's this sacrifice that's there. He comes uh, as a king, as a suffering king upon a cross. And Isaiah talks about him as the suffering servant and says that he's going to lay down his life as a lamb that's sacrificed for us. And so he is the payment that gives his life for us that we might be redeemed and restored. Redeemed means, it's a phrase that means that, that for, for a slave who was owned by someone else, that he paid the price of redemption to free that slave so that it might truly walk in freedom. And that's what Jesus came to do in his first coming. In his second coming, what we see is that Christ is coming to, re, to reign as a king. In Revelation, the last book in the Bible, 45 times, it talks about Jesus reigning on a throne or, or, or ruling as a king. Let me just read a little bit here so we begin to whet our appetites for who he is and all that he is able to do for us. Revelation 5, it says, Then I saw the right hand of him who was seated on a throne, a scroll written within, and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and look into it. Why is that so important? This is the unfolding of the last things, that what was going to happen. And he was saying, if no one's able to look into that, then we won't know what is to come. And we won't be able to unleash and see what is to come if no one is worthy. And so he says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The lamb is also the lion. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes. And there were seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals and you, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne, the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And they fell down and worshiped. See, there's one who was able to bring about our redemption. There's one who was able to bring about our restoration. There's one who was able to bring about a new world. And his name is Jesus. And so that's why we look to him. That's why we worship him. That's why he is at the center of all creation, at the center of our salvation. It's Christ exalted and lifted up 
That's how we will see him when he comes again. We will see him with all of that beauty, all of that glory, and all of that power. Ephesians 2 says, In the coming ages, Christ will show off the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. God's going to show off the immeasurable riches of his kindness toward us through Christ. That's, that's what we have to look forward to for the rest of human history. The promise is not just that we would go up to heaven as spirits, but that we would one day be here again, enjoying life on earth in all that it was intended to be. Remember how Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Does he answer that prayer? Is God going to answer that prayer? Yes, he is. God's going to answer that day. One day there will come a kingdom where his will will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven now. And you know what the greatest joy for us in that day will be? The presence of God. Revelation 21. says this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And our greatest joy is not just going to be the stuff, but it's going to be the presence of the Lord who made all the stuff. God himself will be with us. And that's the ultimate plan that we have. Psalm 16 says this, In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures evermore. And it's in the presence of our Savior, who returns as a ruling king, that we with glorified bodies, reunited with our eternal spirits, will live with him forever and we will surf and we will run and we will laugh and we will work and we will eat and we will enjoy one another. We will enjoy our loved ones. We'll enjoy his presence above it all. Friends, the, the message of the scripture is God wins. God wins and we are his people. He's our king. And together he says we get to rule and to reign with him in this new creation. And in it all, we will enjoy him and all the world is to offer. You know, the, what, there's a phrase in, in kind of at the very end of the scriptures, in the very last chapter, that I think tells us what we need to do with this, this message. Revelation 22. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty Come. But the one who desires take water of life, take the water of life without price. Friends, come to a Savior who offers you something that will meet all of your thirsts without you having to pay for it. It's free. It's a gift that he gives you. All you have to do is come, but you have to come and pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray and we ask for your mercy. Father, we I just ask that you would give us a hunger for heaven, a hunger for your presence, a hunger for a day when we are restored and we see things as they truly are and we enjoy things as you intended them to be. Father, as we groan in the midst of this world, might that just whet our appetite 
and make us thirsty for your presence and for heaven. Father, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.